Howdy, folks. Welcome to Down with the Dharma podcast. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Stephanie Mines, and we're going to be talking about the intersection of health and climate. And um, we, so we'll just jump right into it. Um, so before, before, before we started recording, you were talking about how kind of early in your research and career, you were focusing on health, focusing on trauma, focusing on sexual abuse, focusing on um, the trauma of veterans. Um, but then you're saying how, because of climate crisis, it's changed how you understand health. Um, and so it shifted the context in which you're understanding health or working with health. Um, so could you say more than about how that, how the climate crisis has caused you to shift how you think, how you see things or how you think things should be dealt with? Yes, thank you, John. Uh, I, I would actually like to begin uh, with an apology mm-hmm. um, because while I am fully engaged right now in climate justice and health justice, which I see as inseparable, I'm late to the game. I should have been doing this 20 years ago. And so I want to apologize for my privilege really and my self-indulgence that for so long I have really focused on individual as opposed to collective issues. I don't regret it. I'm apologetic for my ignorance, for my failure to see the magnitude of injustice in the healthcare field but also in terms of protecting people from the health consequences of climate crisis. Because I am acting as if my life has totally turned around as a result of climate crisis, which it has, but that should have happened 20, 30 years ago. Uh, I, I am apologetic for my ignorance and not seeing that I should have been advocating in this way long before 2016, which is really when things changed for me. And things changed for me, not because I suddenly woke up to climate crisis. Uh, I Mm. wish I could say that that was the causative factor. It wasn't. I was kicked in the butt, I would say, kicked in the butt by spiritual guidance. So whatever spiritual guides I have that want me to be a voice for humanity, they kicked my butt in 2016. uh, And they did that uh, at the moment that Donald Trump was elected to the presidency of the United States. So literally at that moment, uh, not when he was elected, but when he accepted the election in that ridiculous display of his, uh, I would say, uh, lack of skill in stepping into a privileged role that he did not deserve. But at that moment, the audacity of that, the injustice of that moment rallied my guides and they kicked my butt instantaneously, it took about 10 minutes, 
for me to receive directives that I could not ignore and I haven't ignored since or abandoned, which was to form climate change and consciousness and to reshape the Tara approach for the resolution of shock and trauma, which I had founded quite a long time prior to that, uh, that you're familiar with because you studied the Tara approach uh, with me. Uh, and that is the origin of our connection for which I'm extremely grateful. But as a result of what happened at midnight in 2016, I refashioned everything that I was doing and took on a collective view. I didn't abandon the personal view. I am still committed to individuals because I see that as part of the collective awakening. So it's not that I have really abandoned anything. I have just changed the prism, you might say, the orientation. Mm -hmm. uh, and that orientation now is really for the future of humanity and for the children of the future. Yeah, so it's interesting because, okay, so when when I was in college way back when, uh, 91 to 95, right? So that's um, when I was working with you. And so to me, it felt like you were my first Buddhist teacher. I didn't, I mean, you were my therapist, but I related to you as a Buddhist teacher because you were Buddhist and I was, I was, I, that way I was like beginning to be Buddhist at that time. Um, and then the way we worked together was a very contemplative way of working, right? So you would um, um, give me sessions of Jinshin Jitsu, which is like this acupressure technique, which basically I saw it as um, putting me into a meditative state, a state that harmonizes my body and my breath energy and my consciousness. Um, so it was like I was doing my own meditating, but then when I was having sessions with you, that also felt like it was a meditation practice that was happening. Um, and then we were working on trauma, which which was to a large degree getting getting in touch with my body and then allowing things to come up and be released. Um, and so that was that was uh, one on one sessions, individual sessions that we were doing together. Um, and so then, okay, fast forward, I went on to become a monk and then I was practicing as a monk in a monastery. And so then that's a, it's a collective practice you're doing together with everybody. Um, but we weren't necessarily talking about trauma and we weren't, we didn't have the complementariness, I would say, of doing the counseling context with the collective meditation context. Um, and so then... So anyway, so, so I was a monk for a long time and then I stopped being a monk and then now I'm in grad school. Um, and so then, so I'm finishing my PhD in practical theology and the, fi the field of pastoral theology and practical theology um, in the US, the, progress the progressive wing of it, um, they talk about um, what they call four paradigms of past pastoral care. So they say there's a pre-modern classical paradigm, um, which they call the clerical paradigm, and that would be like the priest, um, you know, bapt baptism and Eucharist and things like that. Then they have what they call the clinical paradigm, which is when progressive 
Christian um, pastoral counselors integrated psychology into pastoral care and counseling. And so then the minister at a church would do one-on-one -on -one counseling sessions with um, people in the congregation. But then there was a, as um, insights from the civil rights movement and women's liberation movement and queer liberation movement got into um, pastoral theology, then there was a bit of a progression where they, they called for what, they called it the communal contextual paradigm that they say, it shouldn't just be the individual one-on-one -on -one within the clinical paradigm. We shouldn't get rid of what we've learned from the clinical paradigm, but it should no longer just be the one-on-one -on -one individual thing because it, it doesn't, it, it's unable to see suffering on a collective level. And it's also, it makes it very expensive and it's not accessible for everybody. So there was a, there's been a call for a communal contextual paradigm and then there's been another term where they're saying even that needs to be challenged from a post-colonial perspective because the queer feminist liberation perspective has tended to kind of ignore indigenous cultures and um, worldviews and epistemologies that are not grounded in scientific materialism. And so then there's also been a call for what they call an intercultural paradigm um, of pastoral care. Um, so anyway, this is a long, this is me taking a long time to say, um, it sounds similar to what you're saying, like, like you've gone from a clinical paradigm to a collective paradigm. Um, and so I, I have the same feeling with my research that everything I learned about trauma, everything I did with you one-on-one -on -one individually, um, I feel like all of that should be um, become more collective. Everyone should have the opportunity to go through uh, a healing journey. Um, and, and it shouldn't just be people one-on-one -on -one cut off from everybody else. We should, there should be a collective understanding that we all have trauma we have to heal from and no one should feel ashamed by it. And it should become more of a collective activity as opposed to everyone in their separate little box doing it. That's beautiful. That is actually beautiful and relevant. And I appreciate actually that you give this background to Buddhist pastoral uh, counseling and that paradigm because that's what your conference is about. And mm -hmm. I'm coming into that conference not as, you know, a chaplain, not as a pastoral worker, uh, and I certainly continue to think of myself as a Buddhist. This is Tara uh, behind me. And I would say now that Buddhism is incorporated into a more uh, universalist approach uh, to spirituality that embraces all spirituality. So less, you know, specific to one focused kind of practice. But the important thing that I feel you're articulating that seems to apply to where you've been and where I am and where we, we are now both going together is this collective emphasis. And indeed, what I have formulated is, is a paradigm called regenerative health for a climate changing world, which puts all healing 
into the collective context. So my goal now, my focus, even though I'm still doing everything that I was doing when, when you met me, I haven't abandoned any of that. But my primary focus in terms of my activism is around this concept of regenerative health, which trains people to bring healing in community forward. And that has several reasons for being my emphasis. One is I am clear that the medical systems that serve humanity, and I am speaking globally here, are not only falling apart and broken, I would say they are illness producing in themselves. And there's a lot I could say about that, but suffice it to say, that's a some review of uh, the, the healthcare systems everywhere. And my concern is for everyone really. Uh, and that I, I attribute to Tara. Uh, I feel that Tara, uh, who I name my program after Tara, uh, is the embodiment of compassion. And so when I say my concern is for everyone, that fits in that context. And everyone is at risk. And of course, those communities and those populations that have done the least to cause climate crisis. In fact, what they do prevents the acceleration of climate crisis in wherever they can apply that, which is unfortunately not global enough. They are so restricted in their sustainable and regenerative action. But those people who have done the least to create this horrific crisis are the ones suffering the most. And I acknowledge that, and I, I am never far from feeling the pain of that. But the truth also is that everyone, it is a unifying issue. Everyone, even regardless of wealth, is already damaged by the acceleration of a crisis that is having the biggest impact on human health of anything anyone has ever experienced, exceeding even the pandemic. So my goal is completely grandiose and I am not unapologetic about that and undaunted by that, that we must prepare at the grassroots level for the magnitude of this healthcare crisis from the ground up, we prepare by becoming what I'm calling regenerative health practitioners. And that is an extension of what you learned from me, but it has gained speed and gained momentum in incorporating all regenerative health practices. Right, so can you, can you say more? Um about the difference between the model you're talking about that's regenerative health versus the healthcare system in terms of um, like, like my feeling is like what, what I learned from you, I got to learn because I was privileged enough to have the time, the resources, the, the um, 
uh, I was, yeah, I, I had a trust fund from my grandfather. So I got, I went to college ambassador, but I got to go to Boulder in the summers and winters. And so I got to do therapy with you as a result of that. And, but again, what I felt like I was learning from you wasn't necessarily therapy. I felt like I was learning a spiritual practice that led me to become a monk and felt like I was using that as a monk to do what I was doing as a monk. Um, so the feeling I have is like, what, why, is, why, is, why is what I learned from you not part of the education that everyone gets? Um, and I'm not, you know, I'm not saying you, your model is the only model, obviously, but in other words, why is it just me as a privileged person that gets to have that as opposed to why isn't this just fundamental in our education system and in our communities, in our healthcare, not as this medical industrial complex, but more as like, how do we form community and how do we relate to each other? How do we heal each other? Why, yeah, why, why isn't what I learned from you what everybody's learning? <laughs> well, I would say that what we experienced together, and I, I am really honored that you still incorporate that into your evolution and that it had that kind of impact on you that is quite meaningful to me but what we did together what we continue to do is threatening to the system that is in the process of falling apart uh, and that falling apart process is probably not sufficiently recognized I would say probably from within the system, there's enormous amount of denial uh, that the system is not only collapsing, but is actually harming people. Uh, and, and this is true, as I said earlier, it's true for everyone. It is of course more true for those who have less privilege than we have. So uh, an example is uh, I just returned from California, where I was doing my best to advocate for my 102-year-old mom who needs resources from the medical system there, uh, because despite being 102, there's no sign that she's going to die soon, and she doesn't have any more money. None of us have any more money uh, to take care of her, and so I, I have to appeal to the system uh, so that my mother at the age of 102 won't be homeless. Right. She's at risk of being homeless. Yes, we could take her into our homes, but she requires skilled care. She's incredibly strong and healthy, but she can't move around at all. <laughs> she needs constant care. She's incontinent and she uh, needs special attention to her diet and she needs 24-7 care, she needs to be watched and attended to. And it's a comprehensive, it's a skilled nursing function. And so I went to the agencies uh, to appeal to them for what she has earned. She's worked her whole entire life. You know, she's entitled to these benefits. She's earned them. She was a single working mother most of her life. She's worked hard and she's entitled to these benefits. So I was in these agencies, you know, which are quite 
nicely designed and comfortable, relatively comfortable, uh, significant in size. And I was there with homeless people, with indigent people, with non-English speaking people, um, with people who were unwell, uh, many of whom brought their children with them because there was no one to care for them or brought their elders with them because there was no one to care for them. And all of us were given volumes of paper to fill out. And I sat down with my husband, who was an attorney, and we spent four hours filling out these forms, which were very difficult to understand. We then brought those forms back to the desk where they were reviewed. There were things that were incorrect. The forms are unacceptable. If anything is incorrect, we corrected it, brought it back. And in return, we received another packet of papers, which we then had to go sit down and fill out. They were so complex and required so much data that we weren't actually able to complete them. We had to bring them home with us because they'll require research in order to answer the questions uh, that were so detailed oriented, like my mother's expenses, you know, her, her pampers and her earwax removal and all the details of all of that have to be documented. It's humiliating and difficult. And I am looking around in this place and wondering how these other people are filling out these forms. They don't have a doctorate. <laughs> they don't have necessarily a lawyer to assist them, you know? And I was struggling with this paperwork. And it's like, there's nothing about healthcare or community in this entire process. The chairs aren't even comfortable to sit in. There really isn't a comfortable place for people to relax or for, there's not, it wasn't even a playroom for the children, you know? So the children are bouncing off the walls with nothing to do while their parents are trying to fill out these papers. So that's just a recent, experience just I just came back from doing that I still those papers are right there on my desk I have to finish them or my mother will be homeless and I have many more resources than many other people but my mother is still at risk of being homeless so what is that that was that was the state of California healthcare system where was the healthcare in that system so the people in that system are attempting to justify it. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a, there's a beautiful, beautiful book called Emergency um, by a physician who is an emergency room physician. And he talks in that book about the nausea that he feels daily because he can't be a physician. He has to follow these procedures that are counter to the Hippocratic oath that he took, first do no harm. So I am against all the odds attempting to frame an entirely different approach that starts at the community level uh, out of an enormous faith 
that people have the potential to rise to the occasion. So I'm indebted to Margaret Mead, who made this stunning statement when someone asked her, how would you describe the beginning or the onset of civilization in, in your experience as an anthropologist? What is the hallmark of civilization that you can attribute to its origin? And she said, the discovery of a healed femur bone. So when a healed femur bone was discovered in an archeological dig, it was known that that was the beginning of civilization because in order for a femur bone to heal, to fully heal, someone had to take care of that person with the broken femur. So when people stopped abandoning the injured and the wounded, when people stopped just walking away from them because they couldn't continue, when people stopped and tended to the ill, to the grieving, to the wounded, and stayed with them, that was the beginning of civilization. And I would like civilization to begin now because I think we are living in an uncivilized way. Right, so it's that now it's gotten to where everyone feels disempowered and in any problem that you have, you're dependent on this system to fix it. So as a community, we are disempowered to um, be healthy to begin with. And then when something does go wrong, be able to help each other take care of it. Um, and then, so like, but even like very fundamental things of like what to eat, how to grow your food, um, you know, how, like, so in my research, I'm thinking of like different modes of knowledge production. And so this idea of like, um, well, I, I'm in my research, I'm, I'm seeing there's this early Buddhist, uh, mode of knowledge production that was at the time of the Buddha and that was when it was an oral tradition and it was more of like a yogic uh, tradition. And then a next layer was the scholastic mode of knowledge production. So that's when reading and writing comes in. Um, and then you have these Buddhic scholastic doctrines that come in. And then now you have this modern scientific mode of knowledge production that's based on scientific materialism, the worldview of scientific materialism um, and so the, the point is, it's like we've, we've abandoned the previous modes of knowledge production that already contained within them wisdom about how to grow food, how to eat, uh, how to take care of each other, how to give birth to children, things like that. Um, so even like when I was working with you and you were teaching me Jinshin Jitsu, which is a form of acupressure as opposed to acupuncture, um, that's a whole healing system that's similar to a traditional Chinese medicine system that's relying on an understanding of the body and breath energy in the body and um, the breath energy channels and things like that. So it's like, I feel like our the Western culture has basically just fully gone into the scientific materialist system and has looked down on, denied, suppressed, belittled all of these other systems. Um, 
And so then, so there's all these things that are causing us to be sick or causing us to be unhealthy because we've, we've become disconnected from these earlier traditions. Um, so it's not, it's not that the, the scientific system or the medical system is inherently bad, but when it's, when it's the only system and we're completely dependent on that, and then it's become like, you're saying this top heavy system. And it's, it's now just, it's just like, it's there to respond to crisis. It's not there to prevent crisis from happening in the first place, or it's not there to, um, proactively create communities that have health in terms of like what I've just been saying, food and, um, these energy healing systems that people could learn or um, provide each other. Um, so I'm wondering then, yeah, what, what do you see as, how do, how do we disconnect from the top heavy system? How do we return back to the ground? Um, how do we recover systems that are already there in indigenous communities or, um, I mean, it's like we need to recover those things, but also create some kind of language or some kind of framework where there can be solidarity between those systems. Um, and then, okay, we can make use of the, the medical science when it's useful, but not be relying on it where it's a top heavy, uh, a top heavy system that tells you that your earlier system is wrong. <laughs> uh, okay, so, so uh, uh, I'm just saying a lot there, but, uh, yeah, yeah well, so uh, wonderful. Uh, I want to just say that my approach to healthcare and to health justice is integrative. Uh, I feel there is a great deal to be quite proud of in Western medicine, and its resources are precious. Uh, when they are needed and they are life saving, they are brilliant. And I am grateful that we have that. But as you mentioned, they are not the only approach to healthcare. And how do we become more inclusive, more aware of the significance of putting people in the center of their own healthcare rather than those mechanistic developments? And in all honesty, what I see as generating that major shift is climate crisis itself. And I am sad to say, but I feel I'm also realistic to say that climate crisis itself will take us to the place where we have no choice but to access our indigenous wisdom. And it's already happening in many places. It's happening in places less privileged than where you and I live. Uh, it, it happened in Puerto Rico already, where when Hurricane Maria struck and nobody did anything, that same gentleman who helped to kick my butt into my activism uh, and I, suppose I should be grateful to him for doing that. That same person snubbed his nose at the people of Puerto Rico and did nothing to allay their suffering. And so what happened was those people who are reliant on agency-based, institutional-based healthcare remembered 
They remembered curanderismo. They remembered the parqueras. They remembered that in their blood, they know what to do to help one another and to come together. And so those people came forward and returned villagers to health uh, in ways that we didn't hear about uh, because there was no need to brag about it. They just went ahead and took care of their own. And those ways are known to all of us in our indigenous unified heritage. We know, as you have said, just you've said it yourself, John here, that we need to reclaim our indigeneity, the wisdom that knows how we can take care of one another, not to reject Western medicine, uh, to access it as best we can, but it is not going to be available as climate crisis accelerates and those complex technological systems are going to be less and less accessible. And so we're going to be reduced to finding our compassion and finding how do we tend to a broken femur bone? How did that first civilized person discover what to do about a broken femur bone? He wasn't, or she wasn't an osteopath, you know? In fact, the first osteopath, uh, Andrew Taylor Still, was a farmer. The first person to develop osteopathy, the creator of osteopathy, was not a medical professional. Um, he was a farmer. Uh, and he watched his family die from an illness that was ravaging his community. And he asked why he survived and why they died. And he would not let his curiosity go unattended to. So what has happened is we have been numbed into letting our curiosity dissipate, but it has not disappeared. It's there through the arousal of the curiosity that we have about human function, about human life, about the continuity of humanity. Once we open that channel of curiosity and start to really devote ourselves to investigating, we will be guided, we will be given the resources that are innate to us. And it is a, it is a leap, it is absolutely a leap. And, it, and very few of us are encouraged to take these kinds of leaps. We're encouraged in a very different direction. We're all bamboozled. We've all been bamboozled by corporations. Uh, it's what Vandana Shiva says, fossil fuel brain, but we can come out of it. That's the important piece. It's not a life sentence, it's a temporary condition. We can come out of it. First, the humility to realize how bamboozled we are. The bamboozlement is really quite significant. It's almost endless. I can't believe myself how much I am bamboozled. But my curiosity is what brings me out of it. Uh, so it's the willingness to be curious that will allow us to come out of fossil fuel brain. Right, and so it's, it's seeing 
the the arrogance or the hubris of the scientific medical system that thinks it's the one and only thing. Um, so again, we're not saying it's bad in and of itself, but when it's taken to be the one and only thing, and then that results in you being disconnected from an indigenous understanding or wisdom of the body and healing, um, then yes, then it then it's it's cancerous. It's not uh, it's not beneficial. So to be able to have the confidence, or like you're saying, the combination of curiosity and to me, it's like like okay. So this, I, as you were talking, I was thinking like okay. I've for me, I found what I what I is one of the most important things in terms of health is is the food I'm eating. Um, so for me, I got into the macrobiotics because I felt like that that's been something that's really worked for me. And so it's it's this idea that human being our our bodies were not designed to eat. Um, the way food is produced after the industrial revolution that our bodies are meant to eat uh, food the way it was before the industrial revolution. So this idea of um, refined sugars or refined grains, refined flours, they cause like a short-term high, but then a crash. And if you keep doing it over time, you, your body gets wrecked over time. So learning how to um, go back to eating whole grains, whole vegetables, um, a certain amount of animal protein, but not too much. Um, and yeah, when you're eating something sweet, not going into the super intense, high concentration sweet, but like uh, a sweet, a sweet that's not going to give you a high and then a crash, right? So then, but like when you hear macrobiotics, it's like, oh, that's the bougie thing. That's what somebody in West Hollywood or Santa Monica, that's what they're doing. They're going to a macrobiotic restaurant as opposed to, oh, we should be teaching, and it doesn't necessarily have to be quote unquote macrobiotics, but we should be teaching fundamental principles of how to eat and how it makes you feel in your body as a fundamental part of what we're doing with our education with people. Um, and then that, that directly connects to how, does, how is the food being grown? So, so right there, that's one huge chunk of it is just how are we growing the food? What are we eating? How do we educate? How does everyone get educated around that? And so then what is the wisdom? What are indigenous traditions of like, it's already there. Like we've been saying that the indigenous understandings of food and what to eat are, is already there. So again, it's like, how do we, how do we make it not a bougie thing, but make it be Oh, this is just what what we're doing as a way of re reindigenizing or reconnecting with the earth. Um, so, yeah, uh, a wonderful book uh, called Inflamed, mm -hmm. um, written by uh, two incredible people. Uh, one of whom is Dr. Rupa Maria, who focuses very much on food and on growing your own food and understanding how the literally global epidemic of inflammation is the product of our food systems having been destroyed. Vandana Shiva also speaks to this so beautifully uh, and is an advocate for pure seeds, for instance, and growing one's own food and not eating refined foods. And I mean, she's so brilliant, Vandana Shiva. She's really a mentor to me. 
of the comprehensive way in which he attacks uh, the fossil fuel brain and demystifies this bamboozlement. Uh, and food is a very important part of how we clear our minds, literally, because those refined foods will give us foggy heads, will uh, confuse us, even in terms of the nervous system functioning that they influence. So yes, uh, our relationship to food and our willingness to be courageous enough to say, everyone deserves to eat pure food and drink pure water. Everyone deserves to breathe clean air. And what horror has been wrought that those simple basics that are the core of health have been taken away from us. You know, again, going back to my experience in the California agency where I'm trying to get climate justice, health justice for my 102 year old mom, who, who was providing snacks for these little ones that were running around. I, if I could have, I would have been playing games with all of them and giving them carrots and uh, healthy treats to eat. Uh, but all they had were these stupid machines giving them refined food at ridiculous prices. It's like, there is no health in our healthcare system as it currently exists. It's not humanistic, it's not compassionate, and it's not individually based. So the regenerative health paradigm, and I can provide some of those resources, my principles of regenerative health, um, my uh, articulation of the component parts of a regenerative health system, uh, I can provide that so that when this podcast or uh, mm -hmm. YouTube video is shown, those can be included in mm -hmm. it, um, is, is based on what can be done collectively to put the individual with a healthcare need at the center of the healing journey, that their preferences, their expression, their articulation of their somatic experience is what's at the center of how healthcare can be provided for them. That's likely what happened with the broken femur bone is that person was tended to according to what that person said about how they were feeling with this broken femur. What, what did they feel, an ache here? Well, maybe we should put heat here. Maybe we should put cold here. Maybe we should give you soup. Maybe we should do this and trying that and following the instructions of the person with the injury. That is really how healthcare becomes regenerative. And you might say that's completely inefficient. You might say that that would take forever. How, how, how can you systemize? How can you scale that? Well, it scales itself, it systemizes itself. And we have experienced that. I've done pilot projects with this model of regenerative health where the individual is at the center of the healing circle and miraculous things happen. And sometimes they completely negate 
the need for any pharmaceutical, for any surgical procedure. I'm not saying that's true 100% of the time. I am not a purist about this. Um, I'm a pragmatist. Yeah. Right, right. So that, that as you were talking then that, so the other, I mean, the thing, the other, uh, I would, one of the main things I learned from you is how to, how to pay attention to my own body, how to pay attention to sensations in my body. Um, and so there's, there's, I feel like, well, there's, I, mean, I don't know, there's, um, I have all these things I want to say at the same time. So <laughs> I have to slow down here. Uh, it's exciting. Okay. The topic yeah. is exciting. Okay. So we, we were just talking about food as a fundamental thing. And then I, I see awareness of body sensation as another fundamental thing to um, regenerative health. And again, instead of it having be some bougie thing where only rich people get to go and take our Yingara yoga at the Yingara yoga center, uh, awareness of body sensation um, as it relates to exercise, as it relates to sleep, as it relates to food. But then also these, um, what you taught me was the Jinshin Jitsu, which is um, working with the meridians of the body and working with the chi or the, the breath energy in the body. And that so that this is a fundamental thing that everybody, um, should have the opportunity. It's that this is what, like, like I've heard from you, the language of our, our birthright or um, just as being a human on the planet, that should be one of the things that everybody gets to learn um, as an individual, but also something that as you, as you do collectively as family or as community, how to help each other be in touch with body sensations, how to help each other be in touch with the breath energy systems in the body and how those things can help us um, build wholesome states of body and mind and also help us um, metabolize, heal, or um, digest unwholesome patterns that are in the body and mind. Beautiful. Uh, so let me unpack a few of the threads that you have woven here. One is I would like to speak to Jinshin Jitsu, uh, which I was teaching and practicing at the time that you met me. Um, I have now evolved that system within the Tara approach and created something called Jinshin Tara, which is based on what I learned from my teacher, Mary Eno Burmeister, but has evolved as a result of my curiosity about the system. And one way that it has evolved is the discovery that those sites on the body that I encourage you to hold for yourself and that are part of the miraculous self-care that is the basis of Jinshin, which means the art of compassion. The words Jinshin mean the art of compassion. So my investigation into the origins of the system led me to the understanding, which has now been corroborated by various sinologists and acupuncturists and oriental uh, medicine doctors, uh, that the origins of this system are embryological. In other words, this is an embryological system. It's a system that is based on the unfolding of the embryo throughout prenatal development. And that the nature of the system 
actually underscores the fact that we are innately empowered with the capacity to meet overwhelming odds and triumph over them and find ways of surmounting those difficulties, even when they seem to be life-threatening, through the innate energetic capacities that are part of human development. So that is the story of prenatal life. It is uh, fraught with obstacles. It is designed to test our capacity to overcome those obstacles. And all of embryological development is problem solving those obstacles. That's what embryology is. It's problem solving obstacles to embodiment. And those of us who are here, like you and I having this conversation, we did that problem solving. And our lives were in danger frequently in that process, not because of anything bad that someone did necessarily, but because of the structures of our mother's bodies or the pollutants that were piercing the placental barrier or the toxins that were present when people didn't know that smoking while a baby is in utero is damaging that baby's development. How did we face those obstacles? We face them with the innate gifts that we have uh, through what it means to develop as a human being, <laughs> excuse me. So the discovery of that, which as I said, has now been corroborated is part of my uh, support system for having the faith in humanity that I have. Even though if I look at the evidence, it's, it's a difficult faith to sustain. Um, <clears throat> but that faith I know is innate and everything that I do is really geared toward supporting and bringing forward those innate capacities. That's the ultimate indigeneity, which is unifying. It's, it's the same for everybody no matter where they are. <laughs> um, this is an aspect of human development that we share globally. So Jinshin and Jinshin Tara now, which is combined with this understanding, which is, is not a component of Jinshin Jitsu uh, because that focus is on the application itself, which is wonderful. But understanding what the application is actually bringing forward, which is what I call original brilliance or embryonic intelligence. So it is that embryonic intelligence that has already done some pretty incredible problem solving that is not intellectual. That problem solving that we did in utero, we did not do through analysis. We did not do it uh, through any kind of cognitive investigation. We did that as sensory beings. We did that somatically. That's the indigenous intelligence that is restored through practices like Jinshin. There are other practices that will do that. 
I think it's important for people to know that, you know, BKS Iyengar, uh, who developed Iyengar yoga, of course, was an ailing little boy, a uh, weak and struggling being who found yoga as a path of strengthening himself so that he could triumph over his own weaknesses. And Jiro Mirai, who transmitted Jinshin to Mary and Mary who transmitted it to me, both were capable of that transmission because they were ill and they were struggling and they were at death's door. Mary paralyzed at one point, Jiro Mirai dying of leukemia. And these stories are not unfamiliar. There are other traditions with similar stories. And I told the story of A.T. Still before. These were people who were crippled by conditions that they became curious about or that they sought ways of remedying that were outside the medical system. Jerome I was the son of Western medical doctors who had given up on him, who were relinquishing him to die of his illness. And what saved him was an innate, internal, spontaneous process that was completely somatic. And that's what climate crisis is doing to us. We're not there yet, but we're getting there. Uh, and it's pain, it's gonna be a painful path. It's gonna be a hard route to civilization. But from what I can see, humanity can't seem to learn otherwise. So suffering, the way of suffering, and what is the title of your conference? Can you repeat it? Uh, uh, collective Regeneration from Suffering. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so as you're talking then about the embryology and the, so the idea of like uh, the wisdom of water or the wisdom of a river, it's a constant flow and it's, it's whatever it is, it's going to get the river, the, the Grand Canyon, <laughs> it's just a river over time that uh, cuts down into the Grand Canyon. Um, so this idea of Jinshantara as you're, you're getting in touch with this flow, with this experience of sensation itself and the flow of energy. Um, and so then, like you're saying then that it's this, this wisdom that's starting in the womb at the embryonic level so I think that's what I was kind of getting at is that this, the, the necessity of paying attention to sensation, paying yes. attention to energy as a fundamental uh, skill, a fundamental practice, a fundamental way of life and learning how to let go of identifying with the conceptual mind as the center of intelligence or operations or whatever. So it's like, I, it's the conceptual mind is a tool it can be used as a tool but if you're locating yourself as i am i am my conceptual thoughts and then i'm observing my body from that kind of conceptual um 
observation place or whatever, um, then yeah, you're missing out on just experiencing sensation directly. And then there's like an intuitive wisdom or an intuitive awareness that's more immediate than the conceptual mind. And it's more immediate than what you would learn through uh, language and words. It's, um, it's just direct experience of sensation itself and what's happening. <laughs> that's it, exactly. And if there's one thing that I teach all my students now and those who want to become regenerative health practitioners in particular is sensory awareness, following your sensations. That is not only the way that we come in touch with our original brilliance, it's also the way in which we discover the memory of those exact experiences that gave birth to our problem solving capacity. Because we have solved really strenuous problems through sensory intelligence. But it's been so minimized in this bamboozled culture that we inhabit that we don't even think of that as valuable when it's the most valuable way of being who we are. Right. And that's uh, my research in the Buddhism that early Buddhism was more focused on breath and body sensation. And it's later Buddhism that got into the kind of scholastic uh, gymnastics of, you know, very, once you get into the reading and writing, you get very sophisticated. It's that somehow the conceptual mind becomes captivating or it's some kind of, it offers some kind of promise that it'll give you some escape or it'll give you some, um, I don't know. It's. I just see it as that that it's a it's a mode of knowledge production when when reading and writing becomes the dominant mode of knowledge production, and then the mode of knowledge production based on awareness of body sensation and um, that direct intuitive mind. Um, that to me seems to be that that we have to we have to reprioritize that that more yogic uh, mode of knowledge production. And then again, the, let the scholastic knowledge production be used when it's useful, but not have that become the dominating um, mode of knowledge production, because then like we're talking that you end up then over identifying with your conceptual mind, you, you become disconnected from the embodied intuitive awareness. And then when, it, when you do have a problem, then you just kind of freak out and don't know what to do. Uh, so it's like our education system, putting this high, like even, you know, starting from when you're a little kid in kindergarten, you're supposed to learn the alphabet and you're supposed to learn reading and writing. You're not, you're not taught to learn how to be in touch with your body and how to be in touch with this intuitive awareness. And so it's like the, the education system has to be flipped around to where the, the uh, embodied knowledge, embodied awareness becomes the primary thing that we're focusing on. And then the, the conceptual mind is used as a tool, but it doesn't become the overriding dominating um, worldview and way that we're supposed to relate to everything. If we look to the origins of the word justice, whether we're talking about climate justice or health justice, if we look to the origin of the word justice, you know, the symbol of justice is a woman who is blindfolded, uh, holding a scale in her hand. And 
I think she's blindfolded so as not to be distracted by appearances, which tells us that justice is equal for everyone universally. And it's a woman because women like Tara carry the limbic artillery of compassion, the incredible force of compassion as the vehicle of justice. And the, you know, the scales are really weighing, I would say the circumstances. And we do that from a sensory place, not from a place of evaluation, not from the paperwork, not from the forms. Does my mother deserve to be supported in having extremely compassionate care in her 103rd year? You know, is that really a factor of how much she spent on diapers last year and how much her healthcare cost five years ago or how much money she once had in the bank? You know, it's, it's like, where is the evaluation? The evaluation is not based on that kind of information. It's based on compassion. It's based on seeing everyone for the individual who they are. And climate crisis is a great equalizer. So even those who are wealthy enough to deceive themselves into being believing that they will be protected from climate disaster are fools. Climate crisis is the great equalizer. And suffering, I'm so sad to say, I'm, I, I know that pain will only increase in this time. We see it every day. I'm not saying anything revelatory. I'm just mirroring what everybody knows but doesn't wanna talk about. The pain will increase. And through that suffering, I believe, I intend, we will awaken to our original brilliance. Right, okay, so this is a, a very uh, fabulous appetizer for um, what we'll be doing at the conference. Um, so we look forward to hearing more about the regenerative healthcare that you're talking about. Thank you, John, thank you. Um, yeah. Um, uh, I had something, in, but no, it left my head. So, okay. <laughs> you can send uh, me an email, but it, what, mm -hmm. what's occurring to me as we're speaking is that perhaps for that program in the conference, I could do something experiential right. uh, to demonstrate the regenerative model. Right, right. Yeah, and, and the idea of like the inner climate as relating, relating to the outer climate. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And then also the idea that the the intuitive wisdom, I see it as like it's 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 deeper than the emotion. People will say, oh, if you let go of the rational mind, you'll just become quote unquote emotional and uh, whatever, quote unquote hysterical or whatever. Whereas what you're talking about is it's it's you it's making use of the emotion, but it's deeper than the emotion. It's like there's a deeper stability point 
the sensation takes you to a deeper place of stability. You fully feel the emotion, but you're not pushed to do something you don't want to do or you become, and this is the gift I feel of Jinchen Mm -hmm. that it Mm -hmm. has imported for me is by deepening your sensory awareness, you deepen your alignment. Right, right. So you can feel the emotion without being overwhelmed by it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much uh, for this wonderful sharing. And we uh, are all looking forward to um, learning more at the conference. Wonderful, John. Thank you for your great questions and reflections. My pleasure.